0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. These words from the beginning of the book of Revelation, Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. And Heavenly Father, it's our joy and our privilege to humbly claim that promise of yours as we come to your word now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please do have a seat and turn back to um, that reading, it's page 1242, if you've got a a church Bible. It is a a joy and a a privilege to um, be here, Um, very strange to be here 10 years after being here as a ministry trainee, very strange to be stood here, but but a a real joy, and especially given the circumstances of uh, this this partnership that we're endeavouring on um, for the sake of uh, of the gospel in, in Walkley. Well, one of the first rules of combat is to know your enemy. It's why um, we have covert intelligence and spies. It's why cricket teams do extensive video research of the opposition's strengths and weaknesses, something maybe the English batsmen um, should have been doing with the, the Pakistani spinners over the last week. It's why politicians hire spin doctors and researchers to find out everything that they can about their opponents. Know your enemy. Well, Revelation 13 is an opportunity to do that, to gain some vital intelligence for the spiritual combat that we're all engaged in. Uh, We saw last week um, in chapter 12, the war, the cosmic war, a war between heaven and Satan, between the dragon, as Satan was pictured in chapter 12, and Christ and his people, it's a war, we're told in Revelation 12, that Satan lost some 2,000 years ago. When Christ was crucified and then risen and then ascended to the throne of the universe, Satan lost. But like World War II, D-Day has happened and yet the enemy fights on. Victory is assured, but in vain and desperation, the enemy fights on. So just have a look at the verse before our reading, chapter 12, verse 17. John sees this pictured in a vision that Satan fights on despite having lost. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman who symbolized the people of God and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's a fight that we're all engaged in. It's a battle that takes place in our homes, in our working lives, in our families, in our home groups, on our streets. And this week, chapter 13, Jesus, through John, wants to help us to know our enemy, to give us, with yet more of the graphic pictures and symbols that Revelation is full of, to give us some vital intelligence about Satan's tactics. So if you're a bit freaked out by the reading and some of the details in it, don't worry. Um, We'll get onto those in a moment. Or or if you've got some some background and some baggage, maybe you had the misfortune of seeing the Omen films when you were younger. Um, Or that Iron Maiden song about the number of the beast. Well, we'll set all of those things apart. If you like, those things need to be left behind. Let the reader understand. Set those things aside. And let's see what Jesus wants us to know about our enemy. And what he wants us to know, I'm going to put under two headings. And the first one is this. He wants us to see Satan's counterfeit kingdom. See Satan's counterfeit kingdom. So have a look at verse 1. John uh, sees a beast rising out of the sea. A beast that looks just like the dragon. Ten horns and seven heads. That's how the dragon was been described in chapter 12. Verse 2, The beast I saw resembled also a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. See, the beast is the dragon's agent in the world. The beast has the dragon's, has Satan's authority. Now, John's first readers would have recognised something else about the beast. They would have recognised that description of those animals in verse 2 as being from what the prophet Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. He saw four beasts who resembled these animals. Well, here this beast resembles them all. Back in in Daniel 7, those beasts, they represented kingdoms, human kingdoms and kings, political authorities and powers, in our language, governments and the state. And this beast rises up out of the sea. And again, John's first readers would have made a connection there as well. See, Jewish people in particular in the old testament times where we're not fond of the sea and neither would you be too if most of the stories you grew up with involved people uh, dying a watery death noah's ark or the crossing of the red sea they didn't like the sea and so they used it often in the old testament as a symbol of everything that's chaotic and uncontrollable and an anti-god in the world so sometimes in the psalms we see The nations, as they rebel and rage against God, they're likened to the raging sea. And it's out of the raging sea, out of the world, in all of its rebellion against God. Human society raging against God. Out of that comes a kingdom and a king who is Satan's tool in the world, Satan's agent. A beastly kingdom That is Satan's great tool in his war against God. Now there's all sorts of details here. But the big thing I want us to notice is that this kingdom is a counterfeit, a parody, a copy, a hideous copy of God's kingdom, of Christ's kingdom. With the beast himself like a counterfeit Christ. So have a look at verse 1 and 5 and 6. You'll see the beast blasphemes God and his people, we're told. He has blasphemous names in verse 1. And verse 5, he's given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. And then verse 6, he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven as God's people, the church. Well, how does he do that? How does he blaspheme God? Well, of course, the ultimate blasphemy against God is to replace him is to claim to be God and that's exactly what the beast does just look at verse 4 the kind of worship he receives men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast and they also worshipped the beast and asked who is like the beast who can make war against him now that, that's the kind of thing that's the kind of language that you, people use and people ought only to use about God who is like him in chapter 15, that language is used about God. Who is like him? Who is greater than him? Well, no one, the people are saying. They're worshipping him. And they're worshipping him because he's strong. Who is like him? Who can fight against him? That is the beast claimed to be powerful, powerful enough to protect, to give security. And it seems like the whole globe um, worships the beast as well. Verse 7, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. Elsewhere in Revelation, that very description has been used of Christ's kingdom. Every tribe, people, language and nation. The beast claims to be able to draw all people together under the same religion, under the same worship. He claims to offer not just security, but unity. He also claims to offer prosperity, verse 16 and 17. People have to receive a mark of the beast in order um, to buy or sell. That is, they have to look to the beast for their material needs. They have to look to the beast for health and for wealth, for prosperity, for their welfare The beast claims to offer prosperity. And there's a strong hint that the beast even claims to have power over death. Did you notice it it keeps saying that one of the beast's heads had a fatal wound. And yet the fatal wound had been healed. Now normally fatal wounds don't get healed. That's the point of a fatal wound. But it's a kind of a mock resurrection for this mock Christ. But there's more. You see, this beast, John wants to tell us, Jesus wants to tell us, this beast is only able to do everything that he does because he's got another beastly ally. So John sees verse 11, another beast coming up out of the earth this time. And if the sea beast is ungodly, perverted human government and authority, well, the beast from the land seems to be ungodly, perverted religion. So, verse 11, this beast had two horns like a lamb. He looks like a lamb. He looks like Christ. But he speaks like a dragon. That is, he speaks the lies of Satan. And he does it, verse 12, on behalf of the first beast. Uh, He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. It's so why elsewhere in Revelation, this beast is called the false prophet. Because he speaks lies. He speaks like a dragon. He speaks like Satan. And that's why we're told that the real trickery um, is in what he says. Let's have a look at verse 14. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast... He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. But it's what he says that really leads them into idolatry. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He leads the world in mass idolatry to create an image of the beast. Once again, though, it's just a parody of Christ, who we're told elsewhere in the Bible is the image. ...of the invisible God. And he leads people to devote themselves to the first beast. Just have a look at verse 16 and 17 again. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave... ...to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead... ...so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark... ...which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now forget thinking about tattoos or barcodes or computer chips with this mark, as so often with understanding this, as so often with the revelation, it's the rest of the book that's the key. This mirrors the seal that God puts on his own people. Just have a look after our passage at chapter 14, verse 1. <coughs> then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name. And his father's name written on their foreheads. God marks out his people with his name. Branding them with his ownership and protection. And identity. Well the beast mocks that. In other words he asks for the same kind of allegiance. As God and Christ ask for. He receives the same kind of allegiance. People are marked out. People belong. People get their identity. People seek protection from the beast. So what we've got then, we've got ungodly power, ungodly human power, and ungodly religion, power and false religion, ganging up together to parody God's kingdom. And what they do together is mount an all-out assault on God's kingdom. Of verse 7. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Or verse 15. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. So, who, who, or what, and, and when are these beasts? Well, I'm very sure that John's first readers would have read this or had it read in their church service and they would have thought straight away of the Roman Empire, of Caesar, uh, of the emperor cult, all seven places that this book was written to, all seven cities. By the end of the first century, they all had a temple built for Caesar. Caesar, who called himself Augustus, which means the one who ought to be worshipped. Caesar, who often called himself the son of God. Caesar is Lord, was the cry that echoed around the Roman Empire. He had a global kingdom. He was a king with delusions of divinity. He controlled trade and he persecuted God's people. It all fitted. So, yeah, it's just a nice history lesson. The beast has been and gone. A nice history lesson, a welcome reminder that we here in the civilized West, we don't live in such terrible times anymore. Let's close our Bibles and bring on the Sunday roast. But Satan is behind this, isn't he? And, and Satan hasn't changed his tactics. Which is why all throughout history, Since Revelation was written, different Christians at different times and different places have seen this chapter and they've seen something of what they were experiencing. From the reformers who were being persecuted by medieval Catholicism. um, Or those who lived in, in Stalinist Russia. Or Nazi Germany. Or those who experienced life under Pol Pot. They all smelt something beastly in what they were experiencing. And isn't there something of this in what Christian brothers and sisters of ours around the world are facing today? In Pakistan, in Iran, in Nigeria. Satan hasn't changed his tactics. He takes ungodly power and false religion and he uses them in his war against heaven. So we should expect to see these beasts in our world today. We should expect to smell something beastly in our society today. What, even today, aren't we a secular country? We don't go in for worshipping our leaders. I mean, can anyone seriously imagine David Cameron or Nick Clegg or the other one, uh, you know, successfully forming a personality cult? seriously we don't worship our leaders do we but what about when we look for security unity and prosperity from the government as if it can create those things or provide those things infallibly what about when the politicians promise us those things and they do it not just without reference to Jesus, but in opposition to him. Our our country has its fair amount of false religion too, doesn't it? We might be a secular country, but secularism is just a human-centered religion. Secular humanism, materialistic atheism, they all place ourselves, they place humanity... At the center where we get to decide what's right or wrong. But you might say, well, we're not ruled by totalitarian tyrants like Caesar, like Pol Pot or Simon Cowell. We're a democracy. Yeah, democracy is a wonderful thing in so many ways, isn't it? A wonderful thing. But how easily it can descend into worship of demos. The people. See, the beast describe what happens when a society agrees with John Lennon. That there's no heaven, no hell below us, above us only sky. When that happens, who becomes God? We do. And especially whoever it is that managed to scramble to the top of the human pile. But surely we don't kill people over religion here, do we? It's not done, it's not civilized, it's not cricket. We're too tolerant and developed for that, aren't we? Well, maybe not death. And for that mercy, we should thank God. Well, what about the case, for example, of Lillian Liddell, a Christian registrar who was disciplined by Islington Council because her conscience would not allow her to perform civil partnership ceremonies. It was cases like hers that led Professor Roger Twigg of Oxford University to write a book that was released just this past week in which he highlights what he calls the clear trend to place issues of equality above issues of religious freedom. Our society has got its own religious values and it is happy to persecute people for those values. What about the university student who's told that she won't pass the module unless she leaves Jesus at the lecture room door? Pay homage, she's told, to the gods of current academic thought, or pay the price. You see, Rome didn't ask Christians to completely denounce Jesus. They could have Jesus as their God, that was fine. In the pluralistic society of the day, there was room for Jesus as long as they also worshipped Caesar. That's true of our society, isn't it, as well? Sure, our society is happy for us to have our faith, our private, behind-the-closed-doors faith. As long as it doesn't actually start coming out into the open. So long as we accept that the great gods of our society are gods too. And false prophets... Have we got those? Well, what about our media and its biases? The point is not for us to become paranoid or for us to think that things here in the UK are as bad as they could be or as bad as they are in lots of places around the world. We don't want to be be silly about this. But I wonder if, if paranoia is one error I wonder if the error on the other side of the spectrum is more ours, where we just think everything's fine. We just accept things the way they are. We don't see the real spiritual issues and choices that lie behind all these little conflicts that we encounter every day in the classroom, in the GP surgery, in the office, in the playground. The beasts are alive and well in our day. So what are we to do? Well, know your enemy, Jesus says. Know your enemy. Because knowing your enemy shapes how you respond. And Jesus spells out how we ought to respond. So our second point, and much quicker, is endure by being wise. So you make a counterfeit in order to deceive and in order to replace. Think about a counterfeit five-pound note. You do it in order to deceive and you do it in order to replace. And that's the same with Satan's counterfeit kingdom. So if you want to combat it, you need to not be deceived, and you need to stand your ground. So Jesus says, endure by being wise. Look at verse 10, the call to endure. Very bottom of the verse. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. But it's all in the light of the first half of the verse, which is, is desperately realistic, isn't it? If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with the sword he will be killed. Jesus won't allow us to bury our heads in the sand. He won't allow us to say, it's all right, we'll get through it, it won't be that bad. Now he says, out of commitment to him, we've got to be willing to go to prison. We've got to be willing... To give our lives. Rather than bow to the beast. It's very realistic isn't it? But there's also, there's also hope. There's also hope in these verses. And that's meant to give us the fuel to endure. So I wonder if you notice in those first ten verses. We keep getting told that the beast is given authority or allowed to do what he does. See, even the beast, Satan's top agent, even he is not out of God's overall overruling control. Verse 5 is a good example. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise authority, but it's limited. It's only for 42 months. Do a quick calculation in your head. That's three and a half years, isn't it? Revelation is a book full of sevens. Three and a half is half of a seven. Seven in the Bible is about completion. Well, the the beast will even reach completion. He'll be cut off in his prime. His his reign and his rule is limited by God. And verse 8, what's more? All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. (coughs) There's a clear implication there, isn't there? That those who don't worship the beast have their names written in the lamb's book of life. We are secure. Our names are written in heaven's roll call. Before the dawn of time. That is long before the beast. And long after the beast. Someone once summarized the message of Revelation by saying, The lamb wins. See, in the battle between his kingdom and the counterfeit kingdom of Satan, Jesus wins. And uh, verse 18 says that we're enabled to endure by being wise. We need to be wise about the beast. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. We're told to calculate the number, but then we're told what the number is. So we're not talking about maths here. We're not talking about maths prowess. It's another symbol. It's another sign. It's another code, if you like, to crack. But as usual, the key is found in the rest of the of the Bible and in the rest of the book of Revelation. See, if you understand somebody's name, you understand them in the Bible. Your name is connected with your personality, your character, who you are, your identity. If you understand someone's name, you know them. You see them for what they are. That's why there's a great power in having a name that no one knows. Just ask Voldemort or the doctor. If you know someone's name, you get them. You see them for who they are. And in particular, if you see a counterfeit for what it is, then it has no power over you. So the beast's name is 666, but we're told more than that. It's man's number, that is the number of humanity. See what happened on day six of creation. Humanity was created. And so were the beasts, of course. Six, 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 three times, perhaps, to mirror God the Trinity, or God's holy, holy, holiness. Because this beast is humanity exalting himself. Humanity puffing out his chest, and drawing himself up to his full height, and trying as hard as he can to be God. But there's a deep irony. Because the name is still A bunch of sixes. Man's number. Try as hard as he can to be God. Write it three times if you like. You're still just humanity. It's still the number, not of God, but of a human being. And of course, six never gets to seven, does it? Again, Revelation is a book full of sevens, isn't it? And seven is to do with completion. To do with maturity. To do with... God's rest. The Sabbath was day seven. And in chapter 14, we'll be told that those who follow the beast will not get rest. They will enter the rest of God's eternal kingdom. See, the beast and all who follow him are trapped in day six, never arriving at seven, always falling short of the glory of God. Be wise. That is, see the beast for what it is. See through all the spin and the posturing and the power and the pretensions. When it looks to us like the beast is too strong and we can't fight it. When we're told, for example, that what we believe is in, in decline and it's inevitable. We're archaic and going out of date. Well, see the beast for what it is. Man puffing out his chest, but in the process, horrible, horribly disfiguring himself. In the process, becoming less than human, becoming a beast. In other words, spot the fake, know your enemy, stand firm. Let's pray. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. This calls for wisdom. Heavenly Father, we pray that we'd have ears to hear those calls. Amen.